Good morning. That was, uh, that was some footage from our 24-hour prayer event. It's part of our CrossFit program this summer. Uh, we decorated one of the rooms and, and themed it in the Lord's Prayer, and we just spent 24 hours, not all of us for all 24 hours, but we took shifts uh, and prayed, and it was a great experience. So I hope we can bring that back really soon. And if you didn't get a chance to participate, I hope you do uh, next time. We're continuing our series in the Psalms this morning, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. That's where we're going to be this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. So if you have a digital Bible, you can choose that translation, track a little easier. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs underneath the, uh, the chairs and the racks in front of you. So you can grab one or point to one and somebody will pass one to you. Uh, and while you're turning there, I'm going to read to you a, a passage from an excellent piece of fiction by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Has anybody read that? Straight elbows if you've read that? Man repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, it, is, it is an excellent book. I highly recommend it. Um, it, is, it is an extended metaphor, basically. The, the premise of the story is there are people who have died, and the, the people who have died and, and are, are, are in heaven in that city, they're called the spirits. You know, they're, they're, they're luminous beings. They're bright. They're solid. They're beautiful. They're, they're naked and unashamed. Uh, and they're the people who have, who have died and are on their way to hell. They're the, the ghosts. They're transparent. They're light. You can see right through them. Uh, and so the, the premise of the book is the spirits come out of the city of heaven. They're out in the pasture land surrounding the city. And the, the ghosts are there taking a, a tour, so to speak, of, of the, the land. And the spirits come out to try to convince the ghosts to come back to the city with them. Try to convince them, come, come to heaven with us, come travel with us. And the, the book is a series of interactions between the, the spirits and the ghosts. And, and Lewis is kind of trying to show what are the things that keep people from coming for, to the kingdom? What are, what are the things that people let stop them? And so the passage I want to read to you is, is a, a spirit trying to convince a ghost. And the thing that's keeping her from coming into the kingdom is it's going to cost her, to, it's, she's going to lose face. There's going to be some shame involved in her going with him. And so this is what the Spirit says to try to, to try to convince the ghost in the course of their conversation. He says, an hour from now and you will not care, an hour, a day from now and you will laugh at it. Don't you remember on earth there were things that were too hot to touch with your finger, but you can drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing. But try to do anything else with it and it scalds. So we're going to be talking about this idea of guilt and shame. We're going to be in Psalm 51 to do it. Uh, it's, it's summer, it's theme park season, so I'm sure many of you have been to, uh, I don't know, Bush Gardens or King's Dominion, something around, uh, and you find yourself in that position where you're at the theme park, you're in line for the roller coaster, and you're in line for like two or three hours. It's blazing outside. You're exposed to the elements. You're uncomfortable, and you're wondering, like, why did it? Why did we do this? But then you get on the roller coaster, and it's fun. And, okay, yeah, I understand why I waited in that long, blazing, uncomfortable line. This sermon's going to be kind of like that because Psalm 51 is just, it's heavy. It's just so heavy. And so there's going to be parts where we're just trudging through and it's going to be uncomfortable. You're thinking, why did I come this morning? But I promise you there's something on the other end that's going to make it all worth it. And it's going to be good and we're going to enjoy it. Um, Psalm 51 is one of six penitential psalms, which basically means that the, the psalmist, in this case David, has messed up big time, and he's working it out with God. And it's something that's important for us to see because he's confronted with our sin, and we need to learn when we're confronted with our sin how to deal with that. And so for David, in his case, his sin was that you know, he was king, and while uh, all his men were off at war in the springtime, he saw this woman that was married to one of the soldiers that was actually out at war. The soldier's name was Uriah, and the woman's name was Bathsheba. 
And David saw her, and he wanted her. And so he used his power, and he had her brought to him. He had an affair with her, and in the course of his trying to cover everything up, he had Uriah murdered, basically. And so David's confronted with that sin, and not too long after that, he goes and he writes Psalm 51, and we'll read what's in it now. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach, teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls that will be offered on your altar. That's God's word. Um, so this morning we're going to be dealing with this idea. I mean, there's just a million things in Psalm 51 to see, but we're going to be dealing with this idea of, of guilt and shame and how to, to handle that when it comes up in our lives. And as we do, I want to work with this, this analogy because uh, guilt, when we, when we commit some kind of sin, when we do something wrong, uh, it, guilt is, is this, this rift relationally between us and God. It's like this fire that pops up between us and Him. And when, when that happens, we're, we're hesitant, we're uncomfortable in approaching Him sometimes because we feel that heat and we would, we would call that shame. So there's that thing between us, and we're hesitant to approach, and there are different ways that people handle guilt and shame. Ever, I mean, more and more, the culture just kind of minimizes it, just downplays it. You know, just, they're basically they're shameless. And so where 50 years ago we would have considered something shameful, now we just we shrug at it. You know, there's nothing to be ashamed of. That's fine, you know. Kind of just laugh at it, joke about it. In 50 more years, if nothing changes, there'll probably be things that we're scandalized by now that we'll be unashamed of. And so instead of, instead of kind of approaching that, that fire, that heat, they just run away from it. But the thing is, even though you run and you don't feel that shame, you don't feel that heat, the fire's still there, and eventually it's going to have to be dealt with. And kind of the, the second way that people might deal with it is the religious way. And the religious way is you, you reach down and you scoop up all your good deeds, you, you scoop up your church attendance and you, your prayer life and, and, and your Bible reading. You take all these things and you kind of use them as, as a balm to, to, to protect against that heat so you don't feel it as much. It makes you feel better. But once again, the, the, the fire's still there and eventually it has to be dealt with. And that's, that route is actually more uncomfortable than the way the world deals with it because at least the world runs away. <laughs> at least the world doesn't feel the heat. When you try to do it the religious way, you're, you're, you're all constantly next to that fire because you don't want to run away from God, but still you, you're near that shame and it's just uncomfortable. You're always weighing the scales, trying to make sure that, that you're keeping up. But the way the Bible tells us to deal with it is just by jumping through it. 
the way Psalm 51 does, but like confessing, just bringing our sin to God, bringing our failure to God, just telling him, jumping through the guilt and shame and getting to the God on the other side. And as I was, as I was thinking about kind of this analogy, the, the mental picture that kept coming to mind was that one. I feel like I've seen a million movies where, you know, the protagonist, the hero, you know, there's some kind of fire, and to get to something on their side, he has to jump through it. Uh, and I, I feel like that happens in a lot of movies, but the only one I could think of was The Lion King. You ever seen The Lion King? It's like the big showdown at Pride Rock at the end of the movie, and like Simba's chasing. I hope you guys have watched this movie, otherwise this is all lost on you. Uh, but like Simba's chasing Scar, and they're going up the mountain, and then, you know, Scar runs through, and then there's this big, you know, puff of flame that goes up, but then the, like Simba jumps through it. Ah! Um, and there's nothing cooler when you're five years old than watching lions jump through fire to kick another lion's butt. Um, and I was five years old when that movie came out, so feel however you want to feel about that. Um, but that's how, that's how the Bible, that's how Psalm 51 teaches us to deal with, with guilt and shame. Don't run away from it. Don't try to just make yourself feel bad. Jump through it to the God on the other side. And so Psalm 51, it, it's important for us to see. Remember Psalm 1, it said, you know, the, the thesis statement, kind of the doorkeeper, the gatekeeper for the rest of the Psalms, the man who, who, the woman who meditates, who, who delights in God's word and meditates on it, that's, that's a happy person. You know, in keeping with that, Psalm 51 tells us how a word-soaked person does guilt and shame in such a way that there's happiness to be had on the other side. And just doesn't tell us what to do. I mean, we, we, we know we would look at this and it says, okay, what you need to do is you need to go to God, confess, and you know, just bear all with him. And we know that, but what does our confession habit look like? You know, day after day, week in, week out, what does your confession habit look like? What does mine look like? Is it frequent? Is it fruitful? See, when you, it's summertime, and so some of you are probably trying to, like, you know, get buff. I, mean, I, I, I am. And, you know, the rest of you are trying to, like, slim down. And any good personal trainer is going to tell you that change is not just, you know, what you do in the gym. It's what you do in the kitchen, Right? It's what you do, and it's what you consume. If you want to see change, it's what you practice, and it's what you feast on. Same is true with your spiritual growth. So Psalm 51 tells us what to do. Confess, bear all, go to God with everything, with all of your failures, with all of your sin. But it also shows us why Psalm 1 is true, why we need to be consuming the word in order to do this fruitfully. And the thing that Psalm 51 shows us, among many other things, is that we need to consume God's word in order to see four things. And that's what we're going to look at, these four things. Feasting on the Word is going to show you your nature, your power, God's power, and God's nature. And if you, wanted, you need those for a million reasons. But Psalm 51, if you want to have a fruitful confession life, where you can bear all with God, you need to see those four things. So the first thing that you need to see is your nature. Feasting on the Bible, this idea that you know, just run away from your guilt, run away from your shame, the way that the culture handles guilt and shame, the Bible totally blows that up because the Bible doesn't let you escape it. It holds you up in front of you. And that's exactly what happened to David. I'll, I'll read it to you. We know from the heading, uh, mine says, uh, you know, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So yours might say something a little different, but probably similar. And we know from the Bible, we know in Second Samuel 12, it, it, it actually re retells this account. And so we know exactly how this went down. And I want to read to you uh, this, this little passage of Scripture. It is one of my favorites, top three. And this is how it happens. David has committed this sin, this, this, this affair, this murder. And this is what Psalm, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 12 says. It says, The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan came to David, and he said to David, There were two men in a city. 
and one was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of this morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take one of his flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And it says, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives by God... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore fourfold the land because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, dot, dot, dot. And he goes on to lay out everything that David had done. It's one of my favorite Bible accounts. I mean, plot twist galore. Oh, that, that guy deserves to die. It's you. Gotcha. You know. But that's what, the, I mean, and up until this point, up until 2 Samuel 12, you don't get a sense of, of any kind of guilt or shame from David. You know, he, he's just kind of trying to sweep it under the rug. He's trying to cover his tracks, make sure nobody finds out to it, finds out about it. And, and you don't see this, this, this sense of, of guilt, of shame, of conviction until you get to 2 Samuel 12. And what happened? The word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. See, whenever God speaks, when, God, when God's word, he, he, he shows you what you're like. He holds you up in front of you. And we need to see how David handles this in, 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 in Psalm 51 because we're going to have this moment. You either have had, are going to have, or right now are having this moment where you're having you held up in front of you. And it could just be that you're, you're, you're you know, a believer and you're, you're relating with the Lord, you're digging into his word, and the more you come to know what God is like, there's that patience there, there's that, that, that passion for justice, that mercy, that love, that kindness, just that consistency, that faithfulness. And the more you start to see what God's like, you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm so far from that. Like, I'm so different than that. And you have you held up in front of you. Or you could have this kind of this pet sin that you come back to over and over again that you can't seem to, to get over, you can't seem to to kick, and you get a sense of, of this. Or maybe you're like David, and you've surprised yourself. You know, maybe you've done something that, you know, like Nathan and David, if you had heard of somebody else doing it, you've had utter contempt for it, but all of a sudden, you were that man, or you were that woman. You see, David sees what he's like. He has himself exposed. And so he sees what he's like. He feels, he feels the heat. He sees the, the, the flame. And so in verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, he begins his confession. And the first thing that he sees is his nature. You know, he immediately cuts to the heart of the problem. And it's so hard for us to do because often we kind of just want to you know, downplay it because, you know, we, we, we feel like we want to be a good person at least. And so it's like, oh, it's just this one thing. And, you know, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do better next time. And it's just, I'll, I'll take care of it. I'm working on it. But David blows past all of that. And this is what he says in verses 1, 2, and 3. He's not even talking about just his immediate circumstantial sin. It's broader than that. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He says, you know, I, I know, I'm aware of my transgression. I, I see this, this pattern, this, 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 this consistency in my life. I see this all the time. I'm aware of it. In those verses when he says, you know, my, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin, he uses every word that he has in his language to express the idea of sin. He said, I, I see it all. I see it all the time. It's, it's, it's always there. 
And see, our, our sin, our, our failures, we always kind of try to stay zoomed in on this most recent instance. It was just this one thing. It's, I'm taking care of it. I'll work on it. It's just, you know, oh, it was a slip. But our sin becomes a lot more incriminating, and that flame starts to get a little hotter and a little more uncomfortable when we zoom out, doesn't it? And David says, you know, I see this all the time. If we were honest with ourselves and we zoom out, you know, that, that, that instance of, of whatever it is, that anger, that, that outburst of anger, you know, it's, oh, it's just one time. But if you were honest and you zoomed out, you'd probably see there's a, there's a track record there. You know, that's, that's not something that just is just this one time. That's, that's come up before. That's many times over. You know, that, that instance of gossip. Oh, well, you know, I just had a piece of juicy information. I, I just wanted need to tell somebody. But, but zoom out, look back. That's, that's probably a consistent thing. That's probably come up before, right? You know, it's a track record of, of, that, of that, that, that gossip, that, that greed, that lust, that gluttony, that pride, that anger. It all points to something. And, and David goes on to say, verse 4, he says, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. And that's, that's not exaggeration, but that's, that's hyperbole. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a poetic device. He's not saying, of course he has sinned against Bathsheba, the woman that he had brought to him. Of course he sinned against Uriah, the man that he had killed. But what he's saying is that ultimately, because the law, because everything that's good, everything that God desires from us is an expression of who he is, God, God wants justice because he's just. You know, he wants us to love people because he is love. It's, it is who he is. You know, he, he wants mercy because he's merciful. Because everything that we're told to do by God is an expression of who he is, every sin that you ever commit, whether it's against this person, that person, this relationship, or it doesn't seem to really affect anybody, ultimately it's all against God. And David is, is, is particularly in tune with this reality because God had personally chosen him to be king. And then he used the power that he had to do what he did. And see, this is important for this reason. Two of the ways that we kind of measure, you know, how heavy sin is, is we have this idea of, you know, and there's some validity to this, this idea of, you know, little sins and then big sins. And so on that side, you know, when we commit one of the big sins, then we, we really feel it. It's really heavy. It's really hot. But then on the other side, there's, there's another way that we kind of feel the weightiness of sin, and that, that's the context of what relationship it's in. You know, in a closer relationship, sin, sin weighs a little heavier. For instance, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you to do this because God would probably lightning bolt me. But if I said, you know, starting this week, go out tomorrow and for the next 30 days, tell one lie a day to your mailman, a coworker, and your spouse. Or, so, you know, every day for 30 days, go out and insult, you know, a, a, just a, a person passing you on the street, an acquaintance, and your best friend. And then come back at the end of 30 days and tell me which one of those places it, you know, things got heaviest, fastest. It's going to be those closer relationships, right? And what David is saying is that although you might kind of judge those relationships and say, oh, well, you know, sin has touched that relationship in a certain way. You know, oh, I, see, I see how sin has kind of touched that relationship. And there's these sins that I just have to myself, you know, just you know, that I feel like I haven't really touched anybody. He says that ultimately every sin you have ever committed is putting a burden on what's intended to be your closest relationship. And that's why he says at the end of verse 4, so you, you would be justified in your words. You would be blameless in your judgments. What he's talking about is, is the words of a prosecutor. You know, he says, if you, if you were to come and accuse me, you would be completely right. He said, you'd be blameless in your judgments. If you were to pass sentence on me, you would be right to do so. I'm guilty. And we have a hard time arriving at that place because we don't, we don't want to say that. I mean, what, what happens if I say that? If I just, if I just say I'm guilty, you know, what, what will happen to me? There's that, that, that fear there, but David just jumps through it. He sees what he's like, and we need to see that too. We need to see what we're like because it needs to be dealt with. 
And so some of you would agree and say, yeah, you know, I, I can see that track record. I can see that full spectrum. You know, I, I, I have my stuff in front of me all the time too. So I'm, I'm going to go deal with it. You're not the one to deal with it. That's why I need to see the next thing that we see in Psalm 51. is not just your nature, but your power or lack thereof. You remember uh, we talked about in the beginning how there's these few ways of dealing with, with guilt and shame. And one is the religious way. You, you pick up your, your, your good deeds and you try to just soothe yourself. Oh, yeah, I know I did that thing. I feel the heat, but ah, I don't do these other things. You know, our first inclination, if it's not to run when we've messed up, it's, it's to try to just soothe ourselves. And the Bible, once again, totally blows that up because it says anything you do, it's not getting at the heart of the problem. You know, we, our first inclination is to try to, try to, try to fix things. You know, we, we, we make promises, we make vows, we rededicate our lives, right? We say, oh, God, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a missions trip. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to go to church. You know, I'm going to do one good deed a day. I'm going I'm to do what I can to make this right. I'm going to fix it. You notice this entire psalm. This is, a, this is a pretty good length psalm. This entire psalm, David doesn't say a single thing that he's going to do. The entire psalm. And then I know there's a couple places where it looks like that, but those aren't actions. Those are reactions. The entire psalm, he says, he doesn't say a single thing he's going to do. Why? Because he knows he can't fix it. You know, that full spectrum, that, that sin, that transgression, that iniquity, the fact that there's something always in front of him, it all points to something. And he gets at the heart of it in verses 5 and 6. You know, we talked about behold last week, and that point of emphasis. His two big points of emphasis are 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And he's saying, just from the moment I became a person, from the moment I was conceived, there's just been something inside of me at odds with what you want from me. There's there's something that that, that you want from me. There's this truth, this goodness. I I just have this disposition that I can't can't change. And some people don't like that idea. You know, some people want to say, well, no, people are, are basically good. If you're defining what good is, of course you are. But if God's defining what's good, man, we can't... We can't go very long at all. And not even the stuff that we like. You know, there, there, are, there are things that we struggle with, but that, like, kind of we, they, we enjoy, you know? Like, you know, your fit of rage. You know, when somebody's sassing you and you just, I've had enough, and you just, you know, blow up on them. You know, that kind of feels good, you know? It's like, oh, no. But there are things that you don't even like. You know, go the next month without being insecure, without feeling insecure. That's not a sin. Yes, it is. One of the ways we define sin is it's, it's a deviation from how things are supposed to be. And you, are, you were never intended to be so engrossed in yourself that you just walk around thinking, oh, what the thing, th- filtering life through the things that you can't do, the things that you aren't. You're supposed to be totally engrossed in what God is and what he can do, that that's where you filter everything through. But even those, even those things that we don't like, we can't seem to shake. You know, there's this, this, this track record, this thing that we can't get rid of. And so more, religious observance isn't going to be thing, the thing to, to, to change that. We need something different. We need something deeper. And God's not just what interested in what you do. He, he wants this brokenness. He wants a disposition. Look at verses 16 and 17. David says it right there. He says, for you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. I would bring it if that's all you wanted. But you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Just the religious, you know, the religious expression of, of what I need to do. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And David says, I could just do the dance. You know, I could just go to church. I could just, you know, start reading. I could just do all these things. But, and God doesn't want less than that, but he, he wants more than that. God said, David said, there's something deeper than that. God wants a, a brokenness over sin. He wants a, a heart. 
And the thing is, without that heart, you could even this exact confession, even Psalm 51, you could do Psalm 51 just like David does Psalm 51 when you mess up. And without that heart, it can totally just be a dance that God utterly despises, just like the rest of your religious observance. And that's not just rhetoric. That's not just language. I mean, you go to the prophets. There are places where, you know, Isaiah 29, God says, you, you honor me with your mouth, but your hearts are so far from me. Like, God knows. He can see through you. And you go to Amos 5. Amos 5 is tough. That's a hard chapter. Don't read that today. <laughs> Ruin your day. Read it at the end of the day and meditate on it as you try to fall asleep. You know, God says, okay, your feast, your festivals, all these things that I have actually commanded you to do. We talked about some of them last week. You know, all this, the, the, these songs that you sing, all these things you do, I hate it. It gets on my nerves. It just doesn't stop. Just stop doing it. Why? Because the heart, the heart, God wants something deep in that. And that's, it's not just a religious dance he wants you to do. He wants something on the inside. He wants a, a disposition from which mercy and, and justice and compassion and love and faithfulness flow. And David says, I, I, you know, I can't get to that, that brokenness over sin. And see, understanding your nature and understanding your, your powerlessness will start to move you in that direction, that brokenness, that, oh my gosh. But it, it can't just stop there. It can't be just that. Because see, some of you, some of us, are perfectly aware of, of, of your failure and the places where you've missed it, your shortcomings, but that's all you see. So there's not just helplessness, there's hopelessness. You know, there's this, this insecurity. What, you know, what God, does God even want me to come back to him? Is, I mean, is he just done with me? And you were never intended to be in that spot. When the, word, when the Bible holds up what you're like and what you can do about it, it's not intended to debilitate you and, and put you at this, you know, this lukewarm, insecure arm's length from God. It's intended to be something that begins to mobilize you so that you jump through that fire, so you jump through the guilt and shame to, to lay hold of God and make some requests. And see, if, you, if this is all you see, I mean, you will seize up and you will totally roast on the fire of your guilt and shame. You have to see more than that. You know, remember Psalm 1? I mean, up to this point, I mean, this, everything that I told you, it's like the theme park line. I mean, it's kind of depressing, right? This is hard. But Psalm 1, Psalm 1, remember Psalm 1? The man who, who meditates on the law, the man who, who, who delights in God's word, that's a happy person. So if we're not happy yet, we're missing something, right? There's, there's more to see. And there is. You need to see God's power and God's nature. And, and you know, there's no big rededication here on David's part because he knows his nature. And he knows that he's, he's powerless to do anything about it. You know, he knows that there's this disposition that God wants from him that he just he can't affect. And so instead of trying to make all these promises, he looks across the fire. He looks across his guilt and shame. and He says, I can't do anything about this, but he can. And so in, in verses, starting in verse 7, he, he jumps out and he, he, he lunges across the fire as he makes this, this grand invitation. And starting in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. In the Israelites' religious life, if somebody was ceremonially unclean, they would take a bunch of this plant, hyssop, and they would dip it in water. They would sprinkle the person. They would announce them clean. David's saying, what that means, what that, what, that, what that means symbolically, do that to me actually. You know, purge me on the inside. Wash me on the outside. Make me different. Verse 8, let, the, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You know, David's sin resulted in real hard consequences from God. I mean, bones were broken. You know, and that, that very well might be the case with some of us in the room. There's been some place where you just have, have failed, where you, you, you've blown it. And it, there's been real consequences, and they're hard, and they hurt. 
But David says, even in that, even in that spot, even in that moment, let there, let there be gladness. Let me have security in my relationship with you. Let, let joy begin to, to grow out of that. Verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, choose not to see my sin. You know, hide your face from my sins, that place, that, that heart, that spirit from which all of my living and being flows. Change that so that I live and be different. Verse 11, cast, not, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. He says, make me new. Do the work that I can't do. Change me on the inside that, that uphold me with the willing spirit. Literally, make me willing to obey you. Do this for me. Change me. And as he, as he, as he says these things, as, as he's imploring God, David expects genuine restoration on the other side. You know, he sees a happy ending. He sees the light at the end of the tunnel. And verse 13 says, then... Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. See, that's not just making do, is it? That's not just insecure, lukewarm arm's length, right? That's, that's fruitful relating. That's a closeness with God that results in sharing of faith. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That's a, that's a closeness that results in, in singing. He says, I will, I will sing aloud. I will declare your praise. Do you wish you were more consistent in sharing your faith? Do you wish you had a more praise-singing disposition? David is expecting a feat of restoration that so engulfs him that he's going to walk around singing songs and converting the heathen. And the question is, how can he ask that, though? That's where we stop and say, how, but how can he ask that? I mean, he just said a few verses ago that, that he has so sinned against God. And that's the question that makes us linger. You know, that's the question that kind of makes us hesitate this, you know, how can I go to him? You know, how, how can I face him? In high school, there was this girl that I was extremely interested in, um, and so I, I decided, you know, and most of you guys can probably relate, that I wanted to call her on the telephone. Uh, and so I'm sitting at home, and I have my little Nokia cell phone, and I have her lit up in the context, and I say, like, okay, I'm going to call her. Boop, and I'll hang up, you know, I'll stop, I'll hang up, I'm back up for a second, and I, you know, I tried to get motivated, I did my dance, hard. okay, game face, game face, let's go, okay. And I highlight it again, and I kind of linger for a second, and I'll wait, and, you know, I pace back and forth, go over, that's over and over again for like 45 minutes. Why? Why? I'm... I'm married to her now, so, you know, I win. Um, but, why, but why that dance? Why that, oh, why that hesitation? Because I didn't know what I was going to get on the other side. You know, is she going to want to talk to me? Does she want me to call on her? And we have that exact same insecurity sometimes when we see that guilt, when we see that fire, when we feel that heat, and we think, does he, does he want me to run to him? Does he want me to call on him? Will he respond? And the reason why is because that power that David is, is, is not even asking for. I mean, you look at 7 through, through 14, and he's not really asking God, God, would you do that? He's, he's, he's almost demanding, do these things, because he sees that power. And that power holds out the hope of restoration, of, of, of healing, of, of you know, teaching, singing, all those things. But that power is not going to give you the confidence to do what David's doing here. You need to see more than that. The last thing that you need to see is God's nature. 
See, this whole, this whole psalm is kind of a dance between different aspects of God's nature, isn't it? It says in, in, in verse, uh, verse 1, you know, according to your, your, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, have mercy on me. And, you know, verse 4, you're, you're blameless in your judgments. You know, verse 14, I will sing of your righteousness. You know, if you're going to do real business with God, if you're going to do real business with anybody, really, it helps to know who you're dealing with, right? And see, David, because even though he has just totally blown it, is a man that has been immersed in God's word, and so he knows who he's dealing with. And when he comes to him, he, he, he knows who he's talking to. See, a simple understanding of, of God would say, okay, well, you know, you've got steadfast love, abundant mercy. I know I messed up, but we're good, right? That's fine. We can get past this. A simple view of God in the other direction would say, man, you, you are blameless in your judgments. You're righteous, and I have blown it. I'm toast. But what does David say? Verse 14, what does David say? David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Sing of your righteousness? How, how, can, how can David say, he already said in verse 4 that he's totally guilty. If you were to pass sentence on me, blameless judgment. But here he says, it, when you deliver me, when you absolve me of my guilt, I'll sing of your righteousness. How can he say that? I mean, there, there would have been people praying this exact prayer, praying that verse in the opposite direction. They would have looked at David and said, God, judge this man for what he has done, and then I will sing of your righteousness. Because they saw David, they knew he was in the wrong. How then can David say, if you absolve me of my guilt, deliver me from blood guiltiness, I'll sing of your righteousness. And see, it's this, there's this fantastic idea that, that David is playing on that's deeply rooted in his knowledge of God's character, and it's all, this whole entire transaction, this, this, this list of almost demands, this plea that he makes, is all predicated on this question. God, could your righteousness express itself in such a way that I'm not judged and I'm not rejected, but rather, could your righteousness express itself in such a way that I am also made righteous? I mean, it's, it's, it's an awesome. I, I mean, it's just, it's just an incredibly profound idea. God, you're, you're, you're merciful, you're, you're, you're just, you're righteous, you're loving. Could all of these attributes converge in such a way that I, the sinner, am not rejected, but I'm embraced, and in that embrace, I am also made righteous. I'm made like you, and it's okay for us to be together. I mean, it's, it's an incredible idea, but where would, where would David have gotten this idea? Psalm 1, he delighted in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. See, David knew what God was like, and he entrusted him to, to work out all these things. And because he, he saw what God was like, he jumped. He jumped through his guilt and through his shame to the God on the other side. And he did it with this, this Psalm 51 confidence that, that God would respond. You see, we, and we know more than David did. You know, we, David, David didn't, he wouldn't even, he could have possibly been able to conceive of how this could be the case. He just knew what God was like, and so he, he just went after it. But we know more than David did. We know how this happened. And we know, we know Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that there is a, another king, Jesus, who's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it, it's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, says, there's the joy set before him, that you and I were set before Christ. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame jumping through the shame. See, Jesus is a better David. He was a better king who doesn't use his power to abuse his people, but he gave up all of his power and was abused by his people as he hung on a cross, taking their penalty. And David, in verse, in verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sin. How can, how can we ask that? 
everywhere else, just about everywhere else, when that, that language is used, it's for what God's doing to the sinner. You know, you, you've blown it, you've messed up, you've revolted, and so I'm hiding my face from you. So how can we say, hide your face from my sin? Because Jesus lived in perfect righteousness, and when he hung on the cross, God turned his face from him. And if he's not your, if he's not your role model, if he's not, you know, just a good teacher, a good influence, if he is your substitute, that means that when we, by faith, confess our sin to God, just go to him with it, with, with humility, with broken and contrite heart and spirit, and ask him to forgive us, he can turn his face, not from us, but from our sin. Because of Jesus, he, uh, because of Jesus, 1 John 1, 9 is true when it says that if we confess, God is both faithful and he's just when he forgives and he cleanses. Perfect faithfulness for, for perfect justice. There's that abundant love and that, 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 that steadfast mercy. There's that, there's that perfect blameless judgment and that righteousness. You see, David, David knew this, but we know more than David did. And the degree to which you see this, the degree to which you become in, in, in just enraptured in this vision of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, says, you know, lay aside the, the weight and the sin and run with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And we, we lay aside that guilt and, and run with your eyes just fixed on him. Because the more you become just engulfed in that vision, the more likely you are to lay aside your guilt, to jump through your shame, and lay a hold of the God that's on the other side. Jesus jumped through the shame of the cross to get to you. The question here is, are you willing to jump through the shame of your failure, of your sin, to get to him? A day from now, and you'll hardly remember it, a week from now, a month from now, and you'll laugh at it. Don't you remember there, there, there are things that are too hot to touch, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you accept it, if you drink the cup to the bottom, you'll find it very nourishing. But if you try to do anything else with it, it scalds. Do this. Bear all with him. Jump through that guilt and shame. When you do, it, it's an act of dependence on his power, an act of faith in his nature. Do this. Grant him access, like Psalm 51 says, to the inward parts, to the secret heart. Where you have all of your failures and all of your insecurities tucked away. Let him have that. Bear all to him. And that's the sacrifice that, that God won't despise. That's the, that's the sacrifice that God will delight in. Let's pray. God, I pray... Uh, Right now, you would just fill this room and all of your children in this room with your spirit. Help us to be honest with ourselves. Help us to see ourselves. But mostly, help us to become totally entrenched in a vision of the cross. Help us to be like David, where we see ourselves and we know what we're like and we're upfront with that and we know we can't do anything about it, but help us to see the cross. Help us to, to see your nature and your power. So that instead of shrinking back from you, instead of running from you, even when we fail, we just jump through all of our guilt and shame and lay a hold of you, cling to you, depend on you, trust you. I pray that you would give us the ability to just get lost in the reality of the cross. And we thank you for, for, your, for everything that you are. We praise you for your, your justice, your righteousness, your mercy. 
And we are so thankful that they expressed themselves the way they did on the cross. Help us to never forget it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.